Good morning. I'm Dave Sakonic filling in for Matt and Rayon, who are off on Easter break. Today, the Weekly Whippet will be coming to you from our new state-of-the-art studio at Lakefront Productions, nestled in the heart of the Appleby Woodlands, near the outdoor classroom. Drop by and say hello if you're ever on the chip trail. This episode is sponsored by the IB company Eyewear, stylish and affordable blue screen glasses on sale after the Easter break. On today's show, Matt and Rayon interview the Rev about changes to the chapel program in the fall, followed by a school favorite, Rise Up, from 2018 under the choral leadership of Dr. Morrison. We will then dig into the archival vault for a quick interview with Mr. Ron Hay, accounting teacher by day and comedian by night. Oh, and one lucky listener will be going home with a $50 gift certificate to the IB trade show in May for answering this week's trivia question. So here it is. Where do the double blue colors at Appleby College come from? First correct email to me is our winner. And now, our interview with Reverend Lukak. Hey Appleby, and welcome back to the Weekly Whippet. This week's guest is Reverend Lukak, and we will be talking to him uh, about a specific change in chapel that we'll be seeing next year. How are you? I am doing well. How are you guys? I'm well. I'm pretty good. It's a beautiful day outside. It is. Rev, we'd like to first put forth our first question to you, and that's, for the entirety of this year, which has been, how has Chapel had to adapt to the challenges that the pandemic has put forth? I guess the biggest thing is because we can't have a full Chapel program, obviously, with 300 students inside the Chapel, we've had to significantly reduce it. So the max capacity is about 40 to 50 people in the Chapel, maybe, maybe 60. And so what we've done is we've broken it down so that we have, basically, it's like a two or three week rotation, depending on whether you're in upper school, senior school or middle school. So basically I see the same students. Um, so I see everybody once every two or three weeks, but I, I kind of deliver the same talk about 16 times, which is interesting. Uh, what I like about it though, which is cool, is having only 40 to 50 people, we've been a lot more interactive, uh, as you know, like going outside, um, doing more interactive activities. I brought in the TV screen, kind of a, a hopefully, um, uh, a precursor to getting actual proper screens in chapel uh, that can be used to further enhance the AV system that's in there. Um, so yeah, it's been a big adjustment, but um, I, I think it's been good in a lot of ways, like a little more interactive uh, approach to, to the chapel program. Uh, obviously shorter, not as long as it's been in the past, and that's something that's going to change, I think, going forward as well. And then, of course, the other aspect of it is that we have try to deliver a chapel video in one form or another every two weeks or so. Sometimes it's delivered by myself or the chapel council. Sometimes it's a house chapel video. We've had various groups, you know, Black History Month uh, would be one uh, where we've had various different groups um, who have produced the chapel videos as well. And uh, as much, you know, to be honest, I'd like to see more viewership on them because I think they're really good, uh, but, but they've, been, they've been fun to produce. And I think for those who have seen them, uh, they've been well received. That's wonderful. Um, yeah, COVID has definitely put a lot of things kind of up in the air. Um, yeah. Chapel being one of those things, um, along with all the changes that has kind of went on this past year. How do you uh, maintain kind of the overarching goals and, you know, meanings and like pillars um, that the chapel program is built on at Appleby? How do you maintain those throughout um, this new COVID, you know, chapel? <laughs> Yeah, COVID Chapel. Uh, one of the things we refer to it now is home of the blue dots because everybody has to sit on uh, where those blue dots. So thank you to Mr. Cavazzo for that uh, wonderful turn of phrase. Yeah, I, it's, it's a good question. You know, it's not so much the COVID thing that's probably had to have us pivot, but at the same time try to be true to our core values. I think 
some of the the offshoots of of going living you know living in this post-COVID world or you know pandemic world and of course has raised a lot of other issues around uh, diversity equity inclusion and other justice issues so I think more a case of uh, you know and having someone like Thea as a chapel prefect who's been phenomenal who's very passionate about these issues I think you know going to the theme of disrupting and inviting uh, and and trying to pivot in a way that more directly addresses some of the systemic inequalities or injustices that we see at Appleby, beyond the Appleby's uh, grounds, and kind of bring those forward. And the, and the whole spirituality piece has been interesting. We've kind of been a little bit more intentional about trying to maintain a, a spiritual core, but doing it in a much more uh, open-ended way that's not rooted in any one religious tradition. Yeah, we've definitely seen a focus on DEI this year, which has been great. And uh, this year, we've talked about how chapels had to evolve to the challenges it's faced. How, and I'm sure you'd have the expertise to this, we just wanted to ask how the chapel program at Appleby has evolved through the years even, not even just through the COVID chapel, just since you've been here from the start, how has the chapel program changed? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question to ask someone like uh, Mr. Grant or Mr. Zakonic or a few of the other, uh, uh, Ms. Mahar would be another one, I think. Um, so many that, that have been here as both as students and as faculty, eh? I guess for me, the, so what I do know this, this is what I will say is that, you know, traditionally, like way, way back, it was very Anglican, right? You know, Anglican morning prayer, very structured in that, in that kind of form. When Bob Lennox, my predecessor took over, his passion and really was ahead of his time was around interfaith stuff, right? He really wanted to, you know, maintain that Anglican tradition, but also bring in the interfaith kind of components to it. I think if I was the only, the only thing I would notice when I arrived here is while that, that piece was there, and I think it was so fantastic, it felt a little bit like, well, it's still primarily Christian, but we're going to kind of throw in the odd text from another sacred text or another, um, you know, maybe kind of, I don't want to say pay, pay lip service, but we were, it was still primarily Christian with a smattering of other religious traditions. And even myself, when I first arrived, I really struggled with, you know, what do you do about the secular piece and people who are not religious uh, in the six years that I've been here, I think it's gone through a pretty significant shift. We've really tried to embrace a more interfaith or multi-faith approach, but also recognize that spirituality doesn't necessarily need to be tied to any particular religious tradition, that values of faith traditions, uh, such as, you know, compassion or, you know, like I said, justice would be another one, or love or or empathy or um, courage. I mean, these are these are these are universal goals or values that we have, right? That, that transcend religious groups, transcend cultures. And so I think we've tried to kind of pick up on that kind of approach to things, you know, so for example, focusing on like the four core values of Appleby, respect, responsibility, integrity, compassion, or the five positive learning attributes. We try to put those kind of front and center. Wow. That's, that's very intriguing. Um, you know, with, with this whole modernization of the of the chapel program, you know, going forth and, and the integration of a more uh, diverse and, and inclusion and, you know, more DEI based uh, teachings within uh, the program, um, you know, many are applauding this, you know, pivot uh, for the chapel program. But what would you personally uh, address to any students or even faculty members who may be hesitant about the changes or may not understand the meaning behind them for the students and for the faculty at the school? <laughs> that's a that's a great question. I guess for me, I, you don't want to lose your rootedness, and I think that's probably what the concern is. You you know, there's so many things change and things evolve so rapidly. Certainly at Appleby, I think people 
like to stick to those things that they that they're rooted to right like you, the metaphor of a tree right you want those roots and the things that kind of ground you and i think the fear is probably that we're going to lose that we're going to completely detether ourselves from our history and our traditions and and then we become kind of rootless right so for me i would say that we will always keep those that rootedness uh within the chapel i mean it's hard not to stay rooted when you're in a building that has like Christian based stained glass windows and just the whole structure and the architecture. Right. So in some ways, you know, part of me says that that we're almost too rooted still, but I, but I think that doesn't, I think you'll always see that those, those core kind of Anglican traditional values come through in the more traditional services like founders week or, or remembrance day, you know, continuing with the Carol services, things like that. Yet try to recognize that to properly do, you know, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion to make it genuinely uh, equitable for everybody and inclusive for everybody, that, that's, that there has to be, there, there is a trade-off, right? There's, there's going to be a loss of certain things. And that, you know, to put another phrase on it that you hear often is that, that piece of privilege. And maybe to let go of some of that privilege that some of us that have the Christian background need to kind of let go of a little bit. But at the same time, recognize that there's still some underlying core values that we all share, that we can all promote and, and focusing on those as, as our common ground. But it's a fair question. Like, I, I think it's a, it, it is really a challenge for a lot of people. It's not just in chapel, it's in so many ways. When you're in a place of privilege, it's, it's hard to, for all of us, for me included, to, to, to let go of a little bit of that privilege, right? It's, it's because it's been so ingrained in us, I guess you might say. Yeah. I mean, of course, we've all heard about how chapel's been changing. And we just wanted to go a little bit into, we see that chapel's now going to start taking a DEI focus. But yeah. I wanted to ask more specifically, what are the plans for the chapel team for you in general to shift more towards a different program, a DEI-focused program where um, religion plays maybe less of a role and we're focusing more on spirituality and DEI and other things? What are some specific events or activities you might have in mind to promote these ideologies? Yeah, another good question. And I'm going to disappoint you because my answer is going to be, I don't know. Um, we're doing right now, as you probably are aware, we're doing this DEI audit. Uh, huge shout out again to Thea, doing amazing work. Miss um, Decker, who's taken the lead from the faculty. I've tried to stay a bit arm's length from it to allow like an honesty in responses and people to really share what they genuinely believe uh, and not feel that I'm pretty thick skinned. It's hard to offend me, um, but sometimes people I know, they don't want to say something that could be perceived as hurtful. It, to, to the specifics, what do I see happening moving forward? Well, I think it's a little bit of what I've already kind of talked about, I, I would like to see us get to a place where nobody goes into the chapel and feels uncomfortable. And that's challenging because there's some people, no matter what we do in the chapel, as I said, because of the physical architecture, it's always going to be an, an uncomfortable place. And not just because the pews are hard and <laughs> there's no cushions on them. Uh, I think it has to do more of the psychological, um, just, you just look around, right? It's a pretty overtly Christian space. The specifics I think you will see one is I think you'll see less time in the chapel. And I think that actually makes a, a bold statement about what, while we see it as important, maybe it doesn't need to have that centralized privilege aspect. Uh, we used to do, well, way back in the day, it was probably about two hours a week. We're down to about an hour, an hour and 15 minutes. But in the busyness of chapel life, that's a long time, right? At busyness of school life, that's a long time. So I think seeing that reduction of time, I think what you'll see is a, a chapel program, like I said, that really wants to center around using some of the tools and some of the central key tenets of Appleby in general, more integrated into chapel life. So for example, 
uh, the positive learning attributes, elements of positive education, positive psychology, uh, a more values, oh, we already do this, but a more ethics and values-based approach to uh, bringing up key themes. Uh, more of an intentionality about bringing in guest speakers. I hear that a lot. I haven't done a very good job with that. I need to be better. Bringing in guest speakers from different faith traditions to, to speak more authentically from those uh, different traditions. Trying to get student voice. I, I, that's one thing I really would like to see is, is more student voice. And I know it's challenging. It's really busy. It's also intimidating. But I think the more authentic student voices we get, really opens up for that diversity inclusion as well. Well, thank you so much. We have a lot to look forward to hopefully next year with the, with the community life block. Uh, sadly, Rayon and I are graduating. Uh, we'll hopefully have to stop by one day and hopefully see how, how much that's changed uh, awesome. over the summer. But uh, I'd like to thank you once again, uh, Reverend Lukoff, for coming on our podcast today and giving us some amazing insights to what will come next year. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. It's been great having you, Reverend. Broken down and tired of living life on a merry-go-round, and you can't find the fighter, but I see it in you, so you can walk it out. We can walk it out.
Next up, we speak with Mr. Hay about juggling teaching and comedy. All right, Mr. Hay, so how did you get started in comedy? Oh, man, uh, I'd probably say it started back in high school. I had a fantastic drama teacher. His name was uh, Mr. Kelleher. Uh, he got me into, into just like acting and theater, and that kind of led me into my interest into uh, comedy and stand-up comedy particularly. Uh, but I'll be honest with you, I had this big interest in first year of university. I just didn't have the guts to actually take the leap to actually become a comedian, uh, even though we had a comedy club at Western. Uh, so it actually took me another 10 years after that. I had a former student. Uh, her name was Lisa Marie. We went out for coffee one day and we were talking about all of this. And somehow it came up and she said, hey, well, you know what? Why don't you just take a course at Second City and just do it, right? You've been talking about doing this for 10 years. Why don't you just do it? And the light bulb just clicked off. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to sign up for the course. So I signed up for Second City. Um, it was a, a seven week course. And at the end of the seven weeks, uh, we had to do a five minute routine in front of our family and friends. Um, and ever since then I became addicted and I've been doing it for the last three years now. So I have to ask because I, you know, you've got a great sense of humor. Uh, you fired kids up in class, all these things. How do you, how do you write a good joke? Yeah, I think for me, I really rely on personal experience, whether it's in the classroom with family or friends. Um, and then after that, uh, I kind of sit down in my, my, my joke writing area of my room, which is really just my couch in front of the TV. Um, and the way you typically write a joke is set up punchline. Um, so the whole idea is that um, you're trying to find a way to surprise the audience with uh, an unconventional ending to, to the story. And that's what makes a joke funny, is to kind of misdirect uh, the audience into a certain direction that uh, they didn't expect to be taken. Uh, similar to a magician, right? And that's where the magic happens, is uh, something happens on stage they don't expect to happen. And, but with comedians, we, we like to do that with, with our words. So give me an example of a, of a quick joke that you would, you could take us through like the setup, you know, the, the guts to the joke and then the misdirection. Um, let's see here. Oh, I better uh, find a joke that's a probably appropriate for the radio station. Here. <laughs> <laughs> Putting me on the spot. Uh, here, let's take a look over here. Um, here, one common joke I, I do with, uh, I close with often is uh, a joke about my name. Um, I, I talk about how, um, you know, my, my parents, they, uh, they name me Ronald. Um, and I, I tell them how I, I don't like my name. Um, so I asked them when I was young, why they named my brother and I uh, Ronald and Richard. And it turns out that they actually named us after former presidents, uh, Ronald Reagan and uh, Richard and Nixon. Uh, so they wanted their children essentially to grow up one day to become the president of the United States of America uh, as Canadians. Um, and one of the punchlines I use is, um, you know, I say, oh, who would have guessed? Uh, this entire time I thought they named me after a hardware store uh, because my mom, she always calls me Rona, Rona. Uh, because she can't actually pronounce my name. She slurs my name. Uh, so I sound like a hardware store. Um, so I kind of take them down that route thinking that, hey, they named me after the president. 
but actually, this entire time, I thought they named me after a hardware store. So, and I am, of course, I imitate my mom. I do this big act out. Um, it usually gets a pretty good laugh there. So, is some of your comedy physical as well? Um, not really. Not for me. Uh, I'm not quite a, a physical comedian. Um, I have a hard time doing some of those things. You know, I think the best physical comedian that I could think of right now is is Kramer. Right? You watch him on Seinfeld, and he's so great with his body. Um, I just don't have that in me. Uh, so I, I typically rely on, on storytelling, just kind of the fundamentals of, of setup and punchline, um, and try to be relatable to the audience. So I'm going to end up with one last question for you. If you were to talk to students and say to them how comedy has made you a better person, how would you go about that? Oh, man, comedy has done so much for me. Um, I'd say one of the biggest things that I've learned or still learning even until this age is work ethic and how much work ethic truly matters in anything that you really want to accomplish in life. And you could be the funniest comedian or funniest person, I should say, I shouldn't even use the word comedian, funniest person. But ultimately, it won't matter unless you're willing to put in the work to write, to go to Toronto every single week, several times a week, perform, get on stage, network with producers. Um, that's how you really kind of climb that, that comedy ladder. Um, a lot of times, raw talent just isn't enough to, to get you anywhere. And whether that's in business or science or whatever it is that you want to achieve, uh, a lot of it is work ethic, and that's something I'm, I'm working my butt off every single day to try to get better in writing and performing in comedy. And, and actually, I won't make that my last question. How many hours a week would, uh, are you putting into your comedy routines? Oh, man, before I guess this whole pandemic started, I was, I would say, going to Toronto four times a week, five times maybe on a, on a, busy, on a busy week. Uh, so that's just stage time right there. So if you include all the travel back and forth, plus the stage time itself, and then you add in the actual writing component, and then you add in the practice component in front of the mirror, I'm putting in at least, oh man, at least over 10, 15, 20 hours a week, um, just through the, you know, just from traveling alone, uh, from going from city to city, takes up a lot of time. Uh, and then the writing and the practicing, yeah at least 10 hours minimum. That is a great inspirational story, Ron. I really appreciate you taking time speaking to us. Thanks very much for everything, Ron. I really appreciate it. No problem, Zook. Thanks for having me on, buddy. Appreciate it. And that's our show for this week. Matt and Rayon will be back next week discussing the new fall timetable of Dr. Sampson. Have a great Easter break, eat lots of chocolate, and stay well.